This is just to prove the concept that you can control a giant walking machine exoskeletally from inside while being ragdolled around in there and not lose control. That right. was the question I was trying to answer with this prototype. Is, right. is, is this whole concept viable? And it turns out with the right technology and a lot of trial and error, it is. <laughs> Hi there. Welcome back to the SolidWorks Born to Design podcast, a collection of inspiring stories about those who create, build, invent, and engineer new ideas into actual new products. And by the way, they all use SolidWorks. I'm your host, Cliff Middling, and I want to thank you for joining us for this special episode of the Born to Design podcast, What Would It Feel Like to Be a Giant? Today, I'm talking with Jonathan Tippett, who not only asked the question, what would it feel like to be a giant, but decided to answer the question himself. During this episode, Jonathan will explain how he built a full-scale giant exoskeleton, where his inspiration came from, and the hurdles he had to overcome in building this giant exosapien. And if you're wondering what an exosapien is, don't worry, Jonathan will explain everything. So let's jump right into the interview. So tell us all about exosapien, what it is and what you're doing now. Yeah, Exosapien Technologies is uh, a company founded on the the question, what would you do if you could be a giant? That was that was really uh, the open-ended mission of the of the company is to bring that experience to humans and explore the possibilities that come out of enabling humans to operate at a scale that we have never imagined before. Right, right. Or, or um, what's it like to be uh, Sigourney Weaver, an alien, I guess, or something like that. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, minus the, minus the perilous threat to your life from an alien <laughs> life form. <laughs> exactly. So where did this dream start? Where did this idea start? You know, there is actually a very specific inception moment that I can point to back in 2003. The first time I went to Burning Man, uh, I was... Uh, rosy-cheeked and, and starry-eyed and uh, I was an, I'm an engineer I love machines I'm also a amateur recreational extreme sports well maybe when I was younger I was a more of an extreme sports enthusiast but I grew up mountain biking and snowboarding studying martial arts and doing all these things uh, that require years of training and practice and, and have no real ceiling to how good you can get. It's just as much time as you want to put in, you get the, the commensurate amount of reward. Uh, and some of my most rewarding moments were spent in the seat of the mountain bike or sliding down a hill or riding a motorcycle probably faster than I should have been where you're in that flow state, that focused flow state, and you're using a skill that you've been developing and mastering for years, your entire body is engaged, your mind is focused. That kind of full body, full focus flow state is something that I wanted to reproduce. I wanted to find another way to access that. And I was at Burning Man, and I saw a sculpture of two dinosaur legs static sculpture 10 or 12 feet tall and it was just a flat platform on top and I looked at it and I admired it for its sculptural beauty made out of car parts and it looked very me mechanistic and I I thought man that's so cool wouldn't it be cool if it actually walked and wouldn't it be cool if you could sit on that flat platform and 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 ride it or even better make the legs move with your legs but that would be really crazy and teetering so what if you also had arms 
And that was kind of the moment that I thought I wanted to build a giant mech suit. <laughs> and it was all about the human experience. It was, there was no problem to solve. The only problem I was solving is that there were no real mech suits in the world yet. There, I wasn't trying to uh, accomplish a goal or achieve a task. I was really just thinking of how extraordinary it would be to build a machine that required complete human control from top to tail without automation. And, uh, and that was the beginning of the journey. Wow, wow, that, that's great. You seem a little bit like an adrenaline junkie, right? You want to you do cool, yeah. cool things. And yeah, yeah. Well, and, and the thing about this form factor is that it's utterly safe. Right. It, it's not high speed. It's terrifying because you're 10 feet in the air. Right. Um, you feel like you're in great danger, but you're actually incredibly safe. I mean, the machine's a giant roll cage. You're floating suspended in three degrees of suspension in there. Right. You've got these huge bumper bars. So the sort of ratio of fear to safety is uh, really, well, no, that's not, that's not a good ratio. The ratio <laughs> of actual perceived danger to real danger is really high. Like, it feels like you're doing something super scary and exciting. And you get that rush and you get that thrill of being a giant. But it's as safe as a roller coaster. Oh, that's great. That's interesting. That's a good point. So how did you begin? I mean, how did you take the first step? Did you design it? Are you napkin sketches or how did it? I still have, uh, I still have a, a picture of the first sketch I did, which was in 2006, when the idea finally incubated into something that I wanted to try and draw. And that was, I just started with a pen sketch. And the goal was to make the simplest walking machine possible. And that's, that's part of the reason why all the legs are on a, the same axis. I didn't start with a... Uh, uh, biomimetic perspective. I just wanted, I thought, well, what, what does it take to walk? Well, you need two swinging sticks that change length and you alternate. You swing one stick forward and then you shorten them. You know, I wanted to use the minimum number of inputs from the pilot to keep it simple and learnable and I wanted to keep the machine structure simple. So I just had a sketch of this machine that has a big axle and four legs hanging off it and then a pod hanging off the middle of it. Right. Um, and, it, and it looked a bit like a gorilla, so I started calling it the Green Gorilla because it was electric powered. Uh, and then after you know, a bit of development along those lines, I was speaking to my, my sister-in-law about the motivation and the philosophy behind the project and the human skill aspects of it. And she was like, well, what about the gorilla? Why a gorilla? And I said, uh, no reason, it's just gonna kind of look like one. And she said, well then don't make it a gorilla if it's not about its gorilla-ness then try and embrace what it really is about. And I realized that it was about human skill and sport. And I'm like, this is a, this is a sports machine. Yeah. This, and, and, and then the next sketch I did, I threw away any sort of false notions of biomimicry and just embraced the project from an engineering first principles perspective. How do you make legs? How do you make leg structures efficiently so you end up with a triangle tube frame structure and started to think about how I was going to manufacture it. Right. Um, borrowed from a childhood of fascination with dune buggies and monster trucks and, and that's where the sort of structural theme comes from. Okay. Uh, and the scale of it just kind of came out in the wash. I mean, you take a human, you put an exoskeletal control interface around them, you make a bubble for them to bounce around safely in, you put a roll cage around that and that establishes the body size. And the legs were just kind of made to be uh, a reasonable aspect ratio to, to 
make sense. And next thing you know, we're in the Guinness Book of Records is the world's largest four-legged exoskeleton. <laughs> well, that's great. So it's almost like an organic design, right? It just came from what you needed from it, right? To be Tim for Exactly. Yeah. And I was encouraged when the legs ended up looking a little like dinosaur legs because nature is operating under the same constraints as engineers, which is physics. Right. Uh, they have a bigger budget and <laughs> a longer timetable, so they end up with slightly more sophisticated designs. But, um, you know, the general architecture, it just ends up looking organic because that's what drives nature's design is the laws of physics and optimization um, and, and utility. They also, nature also happens to be the benchmark of beauty in a lot of cases. So oftentimes I find when I'm designing, if a, if a design looks beautiful or seems to be balanced or have the right kind of aspect ratio, it's probably because it is, you know, because our sensibilities are informed by nature's incredible design. Right, right. No, that, that's a great point. That's a great point. I think it's great what your sister said because, you know, if you start thinking gorilla, you'd end up designing it to look more like a gorilla. It, Unconsciously, maybe, yeah. So exactly, and that yeah. just becomes a distraction, and it's not really what the project's about. Um, I mean, there there is something that relates to returning to our primate physiology, right? Which this actually does not really capture because I was focused on simplicity and structural efficiency. I've put all four legs on a common axis, which is, as it turns out pretty tricky to make walk. I thought I was making it simple, but because of that architecture, you don't have the, the sort of natural separation of hips and shoulders that we're used to as primates. And that's, so that's where we're going to go in future iterations, is oh, okay. we're going to start morphing towards a totally anthropomorphous machine. Oh, really? Okay, yeah. okay. So this, this is just round one. Yes, definitely. This is just to prove the concept that you can control a giant walking machine exoskeletally from inside while being ragdolled around in there and not lose control. That right. was the question I was trying to answer with this prototype. Is, right. is, is this whole concept viable? And it turns out with the right technology and uh, a lot of trial and error, it is. <laughs> So there's already an idea for the next one, I guess. Then, huh? yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we're, we're, we've, we've started preliminary engineering and design work on it in terms of just kind of thinking about the power plant. There's a lot of low-hanging fruit. This machine's been out in the field for six years getting thrashed years. on. So, yeah. I mean, the battery technology alone is pretty old. It's like uh, very budget-constrained 2015 technology. I right. could turn around tomorrow and replace this 350 kilogram battery with a 60 kilogram battery that really? has the same power and half the capacity. So I could put two of those in, I could put three of those in and have more power, more capacity and half the weight. Wow. So there's those kind of changes that are just, just ready to pluck off the branches. Uh, and then there's more um, uncertain ones like the the transition of our overall architecture to more human shaped uh, but uh, you know after six years of piloting it and putting multiple uh, oh, several hundred people have tried this thing and we're pretty confident that, that moving in the direction of anthropomorphous is going to be an improvement. Two thirds the size it just doesn't quite need to be this enormous right. <laughs> half the weight um, yeah. because you know, this was built with a, a first round of investment that we 
was just enough to build one machine and it couldn't right. break. So it was engineered on the side of robust. Um, right. We managed to bring it in at 4,000 kilos. I was aiming it for three. <laughs> so the next one will be two or less. It's already two-thirds the size. So uh, two-thirds the size, half the weight, and at least twice as much power. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it'll that's be impressive. like the super sport model of right. it. <laughs> right, <laughs> super sport model. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. So, But, but you built the first prototype, so that uh, gives you, you... Obviously, there's some lessons learned in that for the next round, so... Very much so. I mean, lessons in how we built it, lessons in how we designed it. We designed this in with SolidWorks 2017, so the whole new um, 3D experience platform wasn't even, maybe it was being considered back then, but um, I mean, when I first designed this thing, the SolidWorks weldment toolbar hadn't been invented. Oh, so really? I manually modeled all the tubes. Oh, no. And when weldments came out kind of halfway through the process, I just threw that model away. I was like, this is, this is just a game changer. Right, right. So, you know, we have yet to really sink our teeth into what's available in 2023. And it's going to be super exciting to have a head start. You know, when we were designing this thing, we were figuring everything out. Now we've got a head start in terms of the overall kind of structural approach. And we're going to be able to spend more time optimizing with FEA and... That's awesome. Dialing it in. What's the time frame for that, what do you think? Well, I mean, there's so many variables. Uh, we've been raising money to explore the, or, or to launch the sports league idea. Right. Um, but then the pandemic hit, and then the war in Ukraine hit, and markets have just been kind of all over the place. So we had a time frame in 2019 we were actually all set to go and do a big uh, tour in 2019 we had dates booked all over the u.s and oh, cool. a couple of conversations in the middle east and uh professional athletes lined up to come and like promote and pilot the thing oh, and, and then that just got all swept off the table so this is our sort of re-emergence from kind of a, a cocoon state through the pandemic <laughs> right, yeah that we that we managed to weather that storm but you know it's amazing how quickly plans can change. For example, three months ago, we hadn't even considered what is now one of our main and most exciting new developments, which is the VX1 ExoQuad, like this whole new concept of a, a mech suit blended with a motorcycle and quad. That was, you know, our focus was all about the PX2, the next generation mech suit, and how are we going to fund that, and how are we going to build it, and what's it going to do? Um, but then, you know, after years of selling pilot training, it occurred to us that one of the biggest feedbacks was, how can we make this quicker to learn? Because it takes three or four days to get your oh, okay. feet in this thing and learn how to take a step. It's like learning to snowboard, you know, you, or right. windsurf or something. It's like, oh, a, interesting. It's, it's a skill that takes a bit of practice. And that's what makes it rewarding. Um, but it makes it hard to share it with people who don't have you know, a lot of money and a lot of time to spend right. a week taking a private mech pilot training course. Right. Uh, and, you know, we still offer that. You can go to our website and you can sign up for mech pilot training. And you could do like a 90-minute course for 1500 bucks, and that's unbelievable. You get to feel what it's like to command this 4,000-kilo right. machine. Uh, but if you want to get to the point of walking and taking steps, it's like a three- or four-day process. Wow, wow. So three months ago... Uh, we started thinking about how could we capture that mech experience of lifting and throwing your body around in six degrees of freedom, six, you know, 
you can spin and twist and jump and roll around. It's a bit like flying a plane on the ground because you have this unprecedented level of control over your machine. How can we capture that, but without necessarily having eight joints to manage and and to um, internalize and to you know right. train reflexes on? And also, how can we get it so that you can get a bit of motion more easily? Because you don't right. you know in, investing three or four days to start moving forward, and it's super thrilling when you take a couple of steps in a row <laughs> and you start to imagine. cover ground. It's just wild. You realize the the potential of the machine um so so but, the next model will be more natural movement well it's only going to be four degrees of freedom so we've put wheels on the end of the legs which means that you can just get in it's you sort of ride it like a sport bike okay so you're kind of in an aggressive riding position and you can just twist the grip and go like it's a quad right but your hands and feet independently control the position of the four wheels. Oh, interesting. Like, a lot. Okay. <laughs> like, four or five feet. But that'll be easier to learn, you think? Yeah, because okay. because you it's only up and down. It's only up and down. Okay, and and yeah. so you'll lean to turn, and you can lift one wheel to go over an obstacle. Um, I can't wait to see this thing already. <laughs> it's going to be absolutely... It'll be like riding a roller coaster where you make your track as you go along. Like, oh. it's going to be bananas. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it'll be like flying without leaving the ground. Without leaving the ground. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's crazy. That's nuts. Yeah. I, I, was, I was wondering if you could share maybe a story of... of an obstacle that you overcame in, in developing or designing this? If you think it's a good story to share, so. Yeah, well, I mean, the biggest obstacle is money. Having an imagination and having an idea is something that you can work on in the background while you have a job and you have a life and you can sort of incubate this vision. Right. That was fun and harmless and, and easy to engage in for years I did uh, and then I built I designed the fundamental motion control system so like the, in terms of technological hurdles that was done as a side project I was working as a biomedical engineer oh, wow. and I, I just poured all of my available money into developing one prototype leg called the alpha leg there's videos online of the alpha leg it, it's like a a giant disembodied robot leg, very much like these ones, that's mounted on a tower, like a 10-foot tall tower, 12-foot tall tower. And the tower is hinged and it falls over and you're sitting on top of it. And this giant robot leg is hanging down and you control that leg with your arm. So you're on top of a 12-foot tower, probably 15 feet up when you're on the seat up there and it's falling over and you have to swing this giant robot leg in front of you using your arm to control the leg and catch yourself and then kick yourself back over and tip the tower the other way and jump back and forth. That, that was the alpha leg, and that was the first proof of concept that showed that the, this motion control system I developed this worked. Work. Oh, okay. And that was on my own dime, on, you know, weekends and evenings, and that was just like a good, obsessed, personal project level. Right. But to build the whole thing was completely out of the question with my spare funds. Yeah. So I actually ended up I, I, having to build a whole community. I founded an educational charity called the Eat Art Foundation, which stands for Energy Awareness Through Art, E-A-T Art. Okay. And, the, and the premise of that educational charity was to support the creation of large-scale interactive artworks, like 
prosthesis, like uh, the Mondo Spider was one of the founding members of the Eat Art Foundation. And we would use these machines to educate kids about uh, clean energy tech, or not just kids, educate people about the creative application of engineering and uh, as a demonstration for clean energy tech, because they were all uh, sort of large, exotic electric machines. And so huh. you bring them to schools and science fairs, you built a 2,000 pound mechanical spider, and you show up at a school and everyone swarms around it, and they're like, how does it run? And you show them the batteries and the motor, and right. they get them all inspired. And, and That's great, that's yeah. great, yeah, excellent. Excellent way to teach our future inventors, right? Yeah. Absolutely, and that was really rewarding, and it was in that context that I was able to build the alpha leg and to entertain the fantasy that I was gonna build this thing for real. Right. But to make it happen, um, I had to find investors, investors and, and yeah. uh, you know, I didn't have a network of investors. I was an engineer, died in the wool. I didn't have business contacts or networks, uh, but by fortune, through a friend of a friend, I was put in touch with uh, a fellow named Aaron Fiddler, who started a company called Furion, and they produced electronics and appliances. And they sponsored the project and provided the, the upfront funding to build this machine. And so for several years, they were like our title sponsor, and we brought the machine to CES at the Furion booth. Oh, the so, company oh, was even yeah, yeah. called Furion for a while. And then that company got sold, and we finally were able to name our own company, and that's when, when we became ExoSapien Technologies a couple of years ago. Okay. So advice. If somebody is here listening... They've got a, a wild idea, like, well, I don't want to say it's a wild idea, it's just something you wanted to do, right? But this, this idea, and they really want to make it happen, you know, what, what would your advice be for them? I would say just start doing it. Like, whatever resources you have. For me, I bought a welder, and I learned how to weld, and I built the spider, the Mondo Spider, which was a smaller project. And that was something that I could manage, I found. And the other thing is, so put all of your resources into creating capacity for yourself, whether that's buying tools or finding space, renting space, buying space, teaming up with people. And the other thing is build community. That was really what enabled this project, is building community, uh, a team. Um, it was through community that we were able to find, like pool our resources and, and have a space that and once you have a space, that really enables the physical manifestation of the ideas. So it was the joining of, of every, you know, every penny I could spend on welding equipment and every minute I could spend inspiring people to get behind the project and, right. and that it would be not valuable from a financial perspective, but but valuable from an experiential perspective, you know, like the team that the, the, the hundreds of volunteers that came in to make this happen did it because they wanted to bring it to Burning Man and they wanted to try it for themselves. Mm -hmm. And not because there is a great elaborate business plan with 10x returns, but because it, it was going to be awesome. Right. right. So it, it was it was that level of sort of ground um, groundswell inspiration that, that enabled it. Yeah, people want to be a part of something different, new, mm -hmm. obviously, obviously cool as well. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, well, this is great. I, I think we got a, a lot of content here. But what what have I not asked? Is there something that would be inspiring to this community that uh, that I haven't asked? It, it almost becomes cliche because you hear it so often. But persistence is the the other ingredient that's most important. The number of times and the number of people 
that have asked, uh, what if it doesn't work? Or uh, what's it going to be used for? Or what's the business model? When that wasn't the point, when it was being created for passion and for the purpose of giving something to society. You know, this, I wanted to bring this experience to the world. I wanted to bring it to life. Right. Uh, and just persisting with that and finding a way, come hell or high water, to turn that into a viable business and a, and a living to support my family and my employees' families. You know, that's, that's now the name of the game. Yeah, that's great. Bringing something new to the world and uh, supporting others. Yeah. yeah, that's great. That's great. Thanks for listening today. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Jonathan. If you are a maker or inventor looking for a community in which to share ideas and collaborate and learn more about the many tools SolidWorks offers for makers, go to SolidWorks.com maker and join the Makers Made in 3D community, a space where all are welcome to learn, engage, discover, share knowledge, and network with other makers. Again, learn more at SolidWorks.com maker. We'll be back again soon with more great Born to Design podcast stories at SolidWorks.com slash podcast or wherever podcasts are readily available. Until then, keep innovating. I really hope that what you heard today has inspired you. If you enjoyed it, head on over to iTunes, search for the Born to Design podcast, and please leave us a five-star review so that this podcast will be recommended to more people, helping us expand the Born to Design community. Thank you.